Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to two passages, which are parallel passages in the Gospels. And the first is Luke chapter 18, and the second is Mark chapter 10. In both these passages is recorded the same incident of parents, covenant parents, bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed, and disciples seeking to hinder the parents from bringing their children to Jesus to bless. They thought Jesus should not be bothered with this. Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, first of all. And they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. They rebuked the parents. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And then chapter 10 of Mark and verses 13 through 16. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. We would consider, beloved, the truth of infant baptism. We want in our consideration of the sacraments in a bit of detail, the Lord's Supper and baptism, to focus especially on one matter of importance and somewhat controversial in regard to both of these sacraments of the supper and baptism. And so we would consider the doctrine that we hold here of the baptism of infants in the covenant of grace, mindful of the fact that we have preached already on the sacraments and on the preaching as means of grace. Now we would zero in on one aspect of the sacraments and in in particular baptism and infant baptism. In Lord's Day 27, as written in your bulletin, we have the catechism's expression of the Reformed faith in question 74 of infant baptism, and especially the ground for infant baptism. We read, our infants also to be baptized, yes, for since they as well as the adults are included in the covenant and church of God, And since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith is promised to them, no less than to the adult, they must therefore, by baptism as a sign of the covenant, be also admitted into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the Old Covenant or Testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is instituted in the New Covenant." Beloved, there there used to be a controversy between the Reformed and the Baptists. And I mean by that the, the ones who think that only adult professing believers have a right to the right of baptism in the church. I say there used to be a controversy between the Reformed and Presbyterian and the Baptists, but... There's hardly a controversy anymore. It seems as if the Baptists have won the day. They themselves repudiate infant baptism, and they would not allow you, the staunchest of them, to be a member, a full member in communion in their church, that you could be an associate member. But if you did not believe that children ought not to have the sign of the covenant, but they have to wait until they're an age in which they can know things and confess things, 
you would not be allowed to be a member of their church. And I say the Baptists in that sense have the controversy. They continue the controversy with the, with the Reformed and Presbyterian, but we've all but stopped as Reformed and Presbyterian fighting back. And so today we consider the Baptists our friends and their theology not so important to salvation and even we would allow, at least certain churches would allow. So if you believe not in paedo-baptism, the baptism of infants, you can be here and you can have your children wait for the sign of the covenant until they're of age to profess their faith. Or if you want, infant baptism will go along with that too. And so we're not only infant Baptists, but we're credo-baptists as certain Presbyterian and Reformed churches have, have considered this a, a good way of showing a friendship. At conferences and in different settings, also of broad evangelicals and Reformed and Presbyterian, the Baptists are invited, debates are had, friendly, collegial debates about the merits of baptism and infant baptism or credo-baptism, adult believers' baptism, and it's all a, a camaraderie. Beloved, gone are the days when we confessed with some sincerity and integrity what the Reformed creeds confess, however, about the baptism that, that is withheld from the children, that is, credo-baptism. Reformed creeds relegated Adult baptism to heresy is something that divides, is something that is not based on the scripture, and is something that's important. That's why the Belgian Confession, Article 34, says, We detest the error of the Anabaptists, who not only would rebaptize their children as adults, but they would also withhold from children the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Gone, I say, are the days when we hold fa held fast to a confession that had that word detest in it. And gone are the days when we're militant even in pulpits and saying that there's an error in the, among the Baptists and the Baptists have it wrong so much that they could not even be a member of our church. Not that we hate them, not that we would despise them and think they are outside of the kingdom of heaven entirely. But the doctrine that is held against infant baptism, we believe, is a bad thing. It is a detestable thing. It undermines the unity of the scripture, the place of the children in the covenant, and even hinders the truth, or it is anathema to the truth of the love of God for adults and their children. In order to, without further ado, enter into this discussion of infant baptism against believers' baptism in that view, I want to bring in the text as a mighty canon against the notion that infants ought not to be baptized in this passage in Mark 10 where Jesus receives the little children and rebukes the disciples who had become the first Baptists. They were hindering the children from coming to Jesus. Jesus said no. He was greatly displeased. He detested that error that did not include the children of believers in the covenant. In fact, Jesus so undermines that baptistic error of certain of his disciples in rebuking them that he himself took those ones in his hand who were being forbidden by the disciples of coming and he blessed them. He blessed them as the great high priest of their salvation, of believers' salvation, and of the salvation of the children of believers. So let's consider, and now from this perspective, and I want to prepare you for this. I'm not going to be, even though I've sounded like that in the introduction, as polemical as I could be and maybe ought to be in another setting. 
But I want us to be positive here about what is at stake, really, with the truth of infant baptism. And it's this. It's, what is at stake here is nothing less or different than the love of God. You see the love of the Son here in, in Mark 10 and in Matthew, and Luke, Matthew and Luke. You also know the love of the Father as well, if you consider the place of infants in the covenant. And also there's the love that we have for the children of the covenant, the children of God in our midst. And this we would emphasize so that it is for love's sake That's why we're compelled to baptize the infants of believers. First, for the sake of the Father's love. Secondly, for the sake of the love of the Son, evidenced in our text. And finally, that we might reflect upon the love that many sons and daughters, most of whom have been baptized as infants, have for this wonderful truth of the covenant of grace and of the, of the wonderful truth of the love of God for our children. So let's consider, shall we, the love that God has for children. Think of that. We have love for children, of course. Who doesn't love a child? I mean a little child even. And before you can say that they've done anything bad or good, you just love them. They're as cute as Christmas, we'd say. Even the boys, the girls, the boys, cute as Christmas. We wonder what happens to them as they grow, but right then, they're so lovable. And we receive them with love and joy. And it's, it's just beautiful is the celebration of the birth of children. Well, beloved, and, and the whole world knows this, that children are to be loved So there's all these social work projects against the abuse of children and and this watching out for somebody else's family and so on because they're abusing children. And, And they have this innate sense that children are to be loved, not neglected, not abused, to be loved. And especially, though the world doesn't know this, they are to be loved in being brought to Jesus. That's how we love our children, first of all, besides feeding them and changing them and being there for them, we bring them to Jesus and his word. This is all because God loves the children. And you see this here manifest in Jesus. In fact, if there was... Any other, no other argument for infant baptism, that would be it. God loves the children of believers. And he would have us bring the children to Jesus in baptism, in every other way, to signify and seal that their righteousness is and must be in him, or they perish like all the other sons of Adam. And here in Jesus taking up the little children, and Mark 10 has paideia, the instructed ones, could refer to any child up to 12 in Jewry, but also it does refer in the literature to infants. But Luke chapter 18, which we read, has a word that is brephos, which is the word for infant. Infants, children, Of all ages were being brought to Jesus, made no difference. They were sons and daughters of the covenant, and he took them up in his arms and blessed them. And he would not give them no time of the day. He didn't have more important things to do. He loved these that people thought were insignificant and could not decide for Jesus in all of this. Beloved, he had decided for them long before they would decide for Jesus. Beautiful. And this is all because the Father loves children. And let's review here what all the Bible says about God. God is one who himself is a family God. 
He loves children outside of himself, but this is first of all because of who he is. We know from the revelation of the Bible that there is this, this wonderful truth of God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That speaks to us of family. That's what the Bible is all about. Father loving the Son in the communion of the Holy Spirit, the love bond, breathing after one another in this wonderful, amazing divinity love of this reciprocal delight in one another. And so the Father and the Son are together at the creation of the world, as it were, and and the Son is daily the delight of God there, and by this Father and His Son there is this world created, and the Spirit as well is breathing upon the face of the waters, and there's this life potential in the world. God loves himself, that's what we say. And that's not the height of selfishness, but the height of holiness. So before we are even born, conceived and born in the mind of God, there was this plan. I am going to show my own kind of love among a people I will create outside of myself. They'll just be creatures. They're not going to be other fathers, sons, and holy ghosts, little gods. They're not going to be like the Nile River gods that we'll hear of tonight, God willing. But they're going to be creatures who nevertheless share in that love. And I love them, and I want them to be mine, and I'm going to make them even a family. A family divine, that is, a family that has the the imagery in their love, in their giving, in their caring of how God loves and gives and cares for himself and communes and is happy. So in the garden, Adam and Eve, they are loved of God and they have a home there. And we don't know how long they were there before they fell, but after they fell, that family was preserved. And it is not insignificant that the first promise to the fallen Adam and Eve was of a seed that would come from their loins, that would be a part of the family of the, of the human race. That seed that would be distinguished from the seed of snakes and of the snake. A family with children from the loins, and yet by the grace of God kept from being snakes and sons of snakes, preserved. And that's why even in the flood and all throughout history, God saved a family, eight souls, Noah and his family. He saved a family. And in fact, just to jump ahead, Peter even calls their salvation by water a type of baptism. The whole family was baptized by the waters from which which they were preserved. And Abraham and his seed as well. The promises unto him, Genesis chapter 17, and to his family, to his seed after him, to the third and fourth generations. And besides that, Genesis 12 reminds us that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be saved. So God saves individuals, to be sure, and each of us has to have a personal relationship with God, but God saves families also, to be sure. This is what he was doing there. And Israel is said to be in the Exodus, God's son and this family people, so that the Passover lamb, Exodus 12, is on the doors of households. The lentils, the side posts, and and the the headers, and and the door um, thresholds of households. Households were saved by the lamb of God. So this is all the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, too, we have from the prophets, for example, the testimony that this blessing is, this fellowship family life is to the children, too. Before they would even make a profession of faith, they were set aside as God's people. 
and foreshadowing the, the wonderful relationship to come of the new covenant, Isaiah 59 says, The Redeemer will come to Zion, Jesus, and to those who turn from transgression. And Jacob says, The Lord, as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, with them to whom the Redeemer will come in the new covenant. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord from this time and forevermore. Isaiah 44. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I've chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you? Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. With the covenant people is always included the children of the covenant people. God, the family God, works that way. Psalm 22, for example, in verse 10. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb, you've been my God. Psalm 22, verse 10. That's what believers could say, reflecting upon their childhood and even knowing something of the truth of their infancy and of their being in the womb, a child of God. Now, of course, they didn't have the consciousness of that. Nobody knows what it was like in the womb. I've never heard of a person that has the memory of that. But in light of the promise and in light of the fact that this is the way God works, this is what the psalmist is assured of and takes comfort in. I was cast, or you, you took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You've been my God. So in Psalm 78, to name one other text that speaks uh, of the truth of the covenant embrace of God, Psalm 78. He's established a testimony in Jacob, verse 5, and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Always Israel was considered the people of God in the Old Testament, and that's why circumcision was, was to be administered to them, to them represented by the males. In the eighth day, it would be the cutting off of the foreskin of the male sexual or, organ and depicting the fact as... Many differ on this, but certainly the fact that they were separated from the world and that they themselves would die if they lived not according to the significance of this circumcision, which was the significance of a regenerated, circumcised heart. So God is the God of family. But the Baptists, of course, would say, well, we know that. You've been preaching to the choir, and even if the Baptists were here, they'd say hallelujah. But it's when you get to the new covenant, that's the problem. And they say, how can it be? How can this be? This thing called Israel, that was a national people, and this thing called circumcision, that was an ethnic thing, a physical thing. And God no longer is doing that family thing now. It's all spiritual, and we all know the Lord, and, and it's beyond family. It transcends what you see and get. And in fact, if you practice infant baptism in the place of circumcision, you're just going to get a bunch of hypocrites who think, well, mom and dad are in, and so am I. Well, how do we, how do we address that? Well, beloved... The first way we address that is by saying not just to the Baptists, but also to ourselves, isn't it wonderful that God continues his covenantal family salvation? It is wonderful. It's so beautiful. God saves his own 
from our own. And that is why, exactly why, the very first sermon on Pentecost Sunday, Peter speaks, referring to the promise of Abraham, to the Jews, the promise is to you and your children, Acts 2.39, and we can't stop there, the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, and we can't stop there, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now the Baptists say here, well, see, it's to the Jewish children who were there, to the Jewish believers and their children. But then when you get to those who are far off, it's only to those whom the Lord will call, only to believers. To which we say, no, the whole text is a promise to believers and their children as many as believers and children are called as are far off. As many as are far off in distant time, it shall be in the future. As many as are far off in Timbuktu and anywhere in the Gentile world beyond the world of Jewry, this is God's promise being fulfilled. I am the God of you and of your children. And that's exactly why Apostle Paul addresses the Ephesians as saints and assumes among the saints in Ephesians 6 verse 1 that there are children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And so in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14, the reason why there's this blessing upon families, even of mixed marriages, of a believer and an unbeliever. The reason we know this is because the children, even of that mixed marriage, are holy. And that's the word for holy. And that's the word for holy. That is sanctified. They're different from the world. There's this recognition, you see, that God's way is including still the children. This is the beauty of God's love. He, not, he does not shrink his love when it comes to the new covenant. He expands it. The Baptists are looking for something there that they think ought to be there, namely one particular instance of Children of believers being baptized. Show me that, they say, and then we'll believe you that infant baptism ought to be practiced. Just one example of infants who were baptized. And we say, of course, we can't show you that. But we can show you that there were households baptized in the book of Acts. Several of the households were baptized, and the promise to the Philippian jailer was that in his way of repenting and believing, he and his whole house would be saved. And the Baptist will say, but aha, there's no mention there's any believers there. And we say there doesn't have to be because the household family of God continues. And Paul doesn't, doesn't matter if he's going to a Philippian jailer or to Lydia and so on. He's speaking the language of the covenant, which is never abandoned in the Bible the burden of proof is on the, lays on the Baptist. They must prove that there's this discontinuity between the ways of God in the Old Covenant and the ways of God in the New. People like to say, well, that Old Covenant's abolished. And then they like to sweep Abraham under the rug. And they like to sweep Abraham under the rug as being abolished with the Mosaic Covenant because to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And their whole thesis is it's not that the promises are made to our children too. It's only those who believe. To which we say the Abrahamic covenant still presides. That was never done away with. And Galatians 3 reminds us of this. This I say that the law of Moses, which was 430 years later after Abraham and the promise cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed by God before in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. Read that, remember that, meditate upon that. Baptist friends, Reformed and Presbyterian, the promise to Abraham and his children has never been annulled, even though 
the Mosaic covenant and all of its strictures and that covenant of law and letter that killed has been annulled. The Mosaic covenant is different than the Abrahamic covenant. Moses is no more. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus in the fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham. In the one covenant of grace promise that was to Adam and Eve and to Noah and to Abraham and sons and to we and our children. This is the beauty of this Bible. For a while, Israel had to be taught, do this, do that, and live, and, and all of these sacrifices, and all of these types and ceremonies and shadows, but all the while, undergirding that instruction was the truth of the gospel, I am your God. And Israel, I bring you out of the land of Egypt because I'm your God, and you're my people, and that will never change. And I'm the God of you and your children. Still, well, much more could be said on this. I could go into the whole significance of baptism. You can read Romans 4, Romans 6. The significance of baptism, it parallels circumcision. Speaks of the truth of our justification by faith of our being engrafted into Jesus, into his life and his death. Baptism signifies that. So does circumcision. The signs and seals of the covenant are, are one in their meaning and therefore to be given to the seed of the covenant. I say I could focus on that or I could digress even into that. But just think about love, the Father's love. That's what behind, is behind all this. Brethren, sisters, family of God at Sovereign Grace Church, Brother Baptist, Sister Baptist, whoever you are may be listening. We love love, don't we? We love the love of God the Father. We love the love of God the Father and we want that his word be upheld so that we understand that even before Abraham was, Jesus was, as he says in John 10. And Abraham was delighting in his day as the expression of the love of God and the sacrifice that would be made that there might be this continuance of a family born of heaven like unto heaven and communion that can never be taken away. That's our Father. That's why Jesus loves the little children. My second point here, we go directly to our text. Jesus, in Mark, and in Matthew, and in Luke, this incident recorded for us three times in the New Testament loves the covenant of God. And he's greatly displeased that the disciples have gone Baptist on him. What place can the children have? How can they help us in the service of Christ? And how can they be significant for our ministry? They're just little ones. Let the mothers take care of them. And when they come of age, they can follow you. Then you can receive them. Jesus says, No. He's greatly displeased. And he says, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm here in this place, this little place. We don't know where. But it's not the marketplace or it's, it's not the synagogue. It's not this great forum where I can have a lot of attention and I'm going to preach the gospel to all of those who can understand it and there's going to be people yaying and saying hallelujah. No, I come to this little place in the home 
of parents who are desperate for blessing upon their children, and I'm there, and I love them. And they're coming to Jesus, and striking they're coming to Jesus. It could have gone to the high priest for a blessing. They come that he might touch them, touch those children, just touch them, seeking some kind of blessing. But it's to Jesus, as to a high priest, as to the mediator of the covenant that he was. And they were somehow implicitly recognizing this. This one, he's love personified. This one, he's the covenant embrace embrace of God. And when he reaches out and touches someone, it's the Father in heaven reaching out and touching someone. And I mean salvifically. And that's what Jesus' blessing is. Let the children come to me and do not forbid them. He takes them up in his arms. He lays his hand on them and he blessed them. What kind of blessing do you think that is, beloved? Just a blessing for a little while and then somehow they've got to make a decision for Jesus. Otherwise, they're not blessed anymore. When Jesus lays his hands on someone in that way and takes them up in his arms and blesses them, they are blessed. They live. And again, their paideia here, they brave us in Luke 18. They're infants. They don't know what's going on. But that's not the point of baptism. Get this through our heads. The point of baptism is that God knows what's going on. God is doing a work. God is embracing some of this fallen race in their generations. And it's not ethnicity. It's not how big a nose you have. It's not how much you know. It's, are you mine? And Jesus says, these are mine. Of such of believing parents among the Jews at that point, they're children of believers, they're mine, they're mine. And who are we to say they're not? Until they show they are. This is the whole point of our defense of infant baptism. They're Christ's. And they know from mother's womb, the Lord is their God. And they are blessed and we can't tell except that Jesus tells. And the word of God says this promise to a thousand generations is the promise fulfilled ultimately in heaven. And believers and their children taken up there. This Jesus will die for them. He will die for them. He will die for other sheep than the sheep of Israel. He will die for Gentile believers and their children. When he's blessing them here, it's not, well, I'm not going to die for them. I'm not going to pray for them in heaven. He blesses and he never takes away his blessing. He never withdraws it. He is this God with them. The earnest of the love of the Father is in the Son. And he will bless them with his spirit. He will bless them with his intercession. He will bless them so that when he comes again, he will lay his hands on them and rise, raise them from the dead. That's Jesus, the son of the father, who loves to do the father's will. You see, he's not come to do his own will. I'm not going to save whoever I want. I'm going to save whoever the father's given to me. And the father has given to me these people, the Jews, and their children, and I will bless them. That's what he's doing here. Well now, beloved, what does that mean for us? About the many sons and daughters who are believers in God's love. What do we do with our children? (laughs) Well, I hardly dare say this, but Remember 
however everybody else deals with children, that is intuitively, we love children. That's how we began this sermon. Everybody loves children, cuddly little babes. We know that's not true, though, that not everybody loves children. In fact, that's why people think we have a choice. We can just cut off the life of a child in the womb. We think we have a choice. Beloved, what a, what a grim prognosis for this world that cuts off its own. Beloved, it's not a good thing either, though, if we would cut off our own, not by aborting them, but by prohibiting them from even being thought of as God's people. That's the Baptist error. Once heard a man say, here's what we think of our children. He's a Presbyterian at heart. They're little vipers in covenant diapers. Little vipers in covenant diapers. That's wrong. That's terrible. You think Jesus was saying, oh, come ye vipers to me, and you're in covenant vipers and I'll bless you. You're in covenant diapers, I'll bless you anyway, even though you're vipers. No. Come to me, my child. Come to me. And note the example that he gives in the children. He, he says this in all the narratives that relay this event. Uh, we're to be like a little child little child, and would it be like a little child, we usually say, well, they're so trusting and so on. That's true. But think of an infant so trusting. They hardly know what they're trusting, do they? Except there's mama's arms and her warm words and her, her embrace, and there's pa right next to him, and this is the safest place in the world. Oh, may our homes be safe havens lovely places even as they grow. But the little child just hangs on, as it were. That's what we're taught by the little child. And, and then they grow a little older and they, they hang on and they hardly know why. But they know it's right. And thus they come to years, but it's this faith thing. And you can hardly even say that the infants have this Faith thing is an activity. So the fathers have distinguished between faith as activity and faith as, big word, a habitus. A joining, a bond, as our catechism says, by which we're joined to Jesus. That's all we have is bond. But that's all we have, and that's how God has us. So we can't be doing this great believing stuff and this trusting stuff. We don't know anything except where we're getting our next meal from, maybe. But God knows, and God establishes the bond. And we are to be, as those little children, just trusting in God now that we know and not trusting in our trusting Not trusting in how good we trust, but trusting because in God we trust. Jesus' love reflected now in us. So we love the children, we baptize the children, of course. Baptism means the same thing as circumcision, regeneration, union with Christ, his death and his life. Exactly what that means. It means you're covenanted with, and so we seal our children because they are covenanted with God. We view them, again, not as little vipers in covenant diapers, nor as mission work. Don't do that. 
They're not mission work, our children. They're God's work in our home. We're not dealing with them as we do on the mission field with unbelievers and their children, calling them to faith and repentance. That's what we do, and that's what the book of Acts is primarily about, though there are many household baptisms along the way. But we say, these are God's children. This is a covenant home. And we're not assuming them unregenerated. Oh, beloved, I'll do that nor half regenerated, half blessed. The judgment of charity and the belief in the promise of God to call his own from our midst means that we judge them to be gods until they show otherwise. And it's not in the meantime that a halo of suspicion is over this household. And every time little Sammy or Johnny, they they spill the milk, we wonder, ah, how can they be like that? And then we spill the milk and we realize we're all in the same boat. No, it's not suspicion, it's love, it's charity. And this is why Jesus says, not bring some of them to me, just some, because they're the better kids. But Peter, he's a bad little bunny, forget that. Bring them all. Bring them all in various stages of growing up and throwing up and whatever else they're doing. Bring them all because they're mine and I love them. And I'll bless them. Because I love the love of the Father. I love that love that's shown and I'm going to die that that love might be established and that there might be more homes that recognize we are to recognize these things. Of the covenant of grace in the generations, Old and New Testament history long. And then, of course, we rear them. And by the way, we're not assuming anything. We understand that certain of our own may be reprobate, not God's people. They might, they might not be God's people. But as a rule, this is how we live. This is how we live. We raise them as God's people. We, we nurture them. We tell them to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And we say, now you say your prayers here. And we're not suspecting it's blasphemy every time we do that. I don't know if I can say our father with this little girl and that little guy who did that. No. You see, here in the home, just as in the church home, we know how to forgive each other. We know how to respect each other. We know how to respect God at work. And we are works in progress, aren't we? Every single one of us. And here's what infant baptism teaches us, if nothing else. It's called grace. Grace, not the potentialities of persons one day to choose for Jesus. Grace, grace, who don't, among those who don't know their right hand from their left. And when they do, they figure out how to do all kinds of bad things with their right hand and their left. Grace, flowing from love. From the Father up above. Now raise them, of course, in the fear of God. Raise them in the fear of God. Men, women, who aren't married yet, that means you marry in the Lord with someone who's going to help you raise children in the fear of God. Wait on the Lord for that. Wait on the Pray for that. If it's God's will, you get married in the Lord, and with whom you can worship. Not, I'm going to go to this Reformed church, my wife will go to the Baptist church down the street. Don't do that. You worship together, and you raise your children together. What a, what a solemn trust. These are the godly seed that God desires from the godly unions, so make the godly unions. That's your responsibility. And then when you're married, and God gives you the seed, of, and just... You pour over that amazing calling. Think about that. Bring the word to them in word and deed. Example. Husband, don't let the women do it all. Women, 
Don't just say, well, a weight has spanked you. Well, that'll spank you when he gets home, but I'm going to wait. Raising children, there's a thousand battles to fight, as I've said before. Pick and choose your battles and win every single one decisively. Men or women. But raise them, that's not spoiling them, but encourage them. And Church of Jesus Christ, let's earnestly contend for that faith. It's about the love of God, the truth of God, the covenant of God here among us and our children. All the way to heaven, all the way to heaven, the family of God. Would you love that love displayed once again in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Suffer the little children to come unto me. Forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would bless the sermon and the ears of all of us who need to hear. Thanks for encouraging us once again in truth and for speaking so powerfully even through a stammerer and speaking so powerfully to ears that are not so quick to hear. Lord, you love us, and we are so grateful that you give us a sacrament to commend your love to us and confirm our faith. Bless these people of God here and their children. Bless the children. Have mercy, Lord. We would bring them the word of God, and we pray for them that you would bring forth fruit among them, that you would keep them from evil and keep us all. Lord, as we pray, we're so confident because you're the God who initiates love, you love, and you've given your son to die for us and the Holy Spirit and the word and the church and families that love the Lord. Lord, hear our prayers that we might earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints the faith of the covenant embrace of God to us and our children. In Jesus' name, amen.